actually the the idea that men don't talk is the more you think about it, it's kind of ridiculous when you go to a pub on a friday night it's full of men talking you go to like five aside football all they're doing is talking and even the idea that in fact lots of people complain that the men in meetings talk over them so actually when you look outside of that myth it's like oh actually this is definitely not true and the idea that men don't express emotion if you go to a football game you will see you and one team loses badly you might see 30,000 men in tears at once but because they're expressing emotion at a different time to when women do there's this idea that that's somehow wrong welcome to the surveyor hub podcast the podcast for surveyors who just love what they do I'm Marian Ellis, and in today's episode, I catch up with Ryan Park, also known as the men's coach. He's a TEDx and international award-winning public speaker. Ryan works with companies and charities that want to improve mental health for men by taking an evidence-based approach, and his coaching program helps men to overcome depression, beat procrastination, and achieve their life goals. There is a trigger warning here. We do talk about male mental health and death by suicide. And if you are thinking of skipping this podcast because it isn't strictly surveying related, please don't. You just might learn something new which could make all the difference to you or a surveying colleague. Welcome to the podcast, Ryan. Thank you so much. I'm really, really excited to be here, Marion. Oh. Uh, I'm quite well I'm excited oh, am I nervous no I'm I've been apprehensive because I haven't recorded a podcast in a long long time and every time I was going to I just thought mm. do you know what it takes quite a bit to persuade some people <laughs> to, to to actually come on the podcast I mean uh, I was trying to think when we we met and I think it was when you were working for a report writing software company and um i think we we exchanged a few messages emails and you did a great session for my um uh, some of my masterminders uh, at the time uh and then i noticed that you were talking well i noticed before actually that you didn't just talk about tech you talked about people and everyone says as surveyors you know we're a people business we are, but we tend to focus on the geeky tech stuff or the juicy defect or the contract or lease or, or whatever it is. And we don't always talk about, about people. And it's quite a hard thing. I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about that today. But I noticed your approach was very people focused. And I think we, you know, we, we got on well. And then I noticed that you started to get into sort of the, the coaching space and specifically men. Um, and so I thought it'd be really good just to chat about that for my, if anything, like a lot of these podcasts, for my own benefit. <laughs> <laughs> Our listeners are along for the ride. But tell me a bit about your your background and, and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, sure. Well, um, I think the most interesting thing or the most relevant thing would be what got me into all this in the beginning. So can I tell you what got me into a moment? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I just want to start by saying not only have I got a lot of respect for you, but also tons of respect for surveyors. Because when I was working at Captigo, I saw how difficult it is being a building surveyor. You know, you've got so much, the average building surveyor has got so much expertise and and they've got to communicate that across to someone who is probably buying a house, might be a first time buyer under massive stress. And they kind of just want to know, should I buy the house? Yes or no. But then they also want to know all the other million things that the surveyor saw. So, yeah, I'm really excited to be here. And I think you've got a great audience as well. 
And my story when it comes to my mental health begins in 2019. And in June 2019, I bumped into a lady who I hadn't seen in years. And I was really excited to hear the latest about her son because Jenny's son, Brad, was taller than me, more muscular. Some would say slightly better looking, although I know you can't believe that, right? It's not possible. But Thank goodness this is audio. <laughs> <laughs> so Brad had a fast car, big house and a great job. And he was a dad with a loving wife. And because we grew up in the same road, I used to look up to him and I used to think that I was on the same trajectory as Brad, but I was just a couple of years behind because of the age difference. Then I saw the look on his mum's face and I realised I'd said something wrong. And Jenny said, basically, oh, my God, Ryan, you're asking me how Brad is. You don't know. Brad's killed himself. And I was really taken aback by that, Marion, for two main reasons. Number one, up until that point in my life, I'd always believed that when people are successful, they will be happy. And Brad was easily the most successful man I knew. But then number two, I'd always heard what lots of us here, which is the reason why men have worse mental health outcomes than women when it comes to suicide is because men just don't talk. And yet Brad was easily the most articulate man that I knew. I found out after his death that two years before Brad died, he went to the doctors, asked for help. He said, please help. I think I'm depressed. I know I'm having thoughts about suicide. The doctor did what doctors are supposed to do, followed the nice guidelines. Brad was referred to talking therapy, which he attended, and prescribed antidepressants, which he took. And two months before Brad died, his mum, Jenny, said, Brad, call me every night and tell me how you feel. Jenny works in mental health, and that's sort of the consensus in mental health is that you've got to get men to open up and talk about how they feel. Brad did that. So I'm not saying that any of these things didn't help. I'm sure they helped Brad. But what really struck me at the time, Marion, was that here was a man who'd done all the things that we tell men in crisis to do, and yet he still wasn't here anymore. And Brad's mum, Jenny, said to me, well, Ryan, you should learn about this because every five hours, four people die from suicide in the UK and Ireland. Three of them are men. And Jenny said, I used to think that male mental health was something that just affected men. But now she said, as a woman who's lost her son, I realized that actually male mental health affects everyone. And I took what Jenny said really seriously. There and then I set aside one day every week from June 2019 until the end of the year to learn everything that I could about male mental health. And, and I didn't do this I actually didn't even do this to help anyone else, Marion. I literally did it because I knew Brad wouldn't want what happened to him to happen to me. So the very, very first Sunday comes up where I've set the whole day aside just to learn about male mental health. And I had no idea where to start. So I had no medical background, no mental health background. At the time in 2019, I was a sales director for a finance company that I founded in you know, about six years beforehand. And, and actually, if you know me, you'll know I didn't even go to university. I have three GCSEs. So I'm starting from like ground zero. But in some ways, that was a bit of an advantage because all I could do was just ask big questions, assume I knew nothing and just read the evidence. So the first thing I looked for was I wanted to know what are the main factors that affect life expectancy in men. And I'm reading a study a couple of hours into my first day of research. And it just happens to mention that there's one day every year where heart attacks in men 
So heart attacks, not suicide. Heart attacks in men jump up by 30%. And on the same day of the year, heart attacks in women go down by about 30%. Can you guess what day that is? Is it the same day every year? Yeah. I was going to say, is it when your kids are born? <laughs> but, not not but a bad fe- guess. A female not perspective. Um, yeah. I don't know. It would be something like Christmas Day or New Year's Day. They're both really good guesses because heart attacks go up on Christmas Day and New Year's Day. But actually, they go up in men and women. And and there is a day where heart attacks go up greatly in men and down greatly in women. Do you want to have one more guess? Mm. I've, no, I've no idea. I mean, I mean, the things that go through my head are then thinking about stressful times like payday at the end of the month or kids breaking up from school or, yeah. you know, like the, the holiday periods. Um, I don't know. They're all good guesses, but the one day every year where heart attacks go really up in men and really down in women is the Monday after the clocks jump forward an hour. Wow, never thought of that. And when I learned that, I had to know why. Yeah, same as you. Yeah, why is is that? Why? So it turns out that what happens when you miss one hour's sleep depends on whether you're male or female. And I tend to throw around the terms male and men quite interchangeably, but really I'm talking about anyone that has a male endocrine system. So that would include trans women. It would include non-binary people who were assigned the gender of male at birth. So if you have a male endocrine system, then what happens when you miss one hour's sleep is your testosterone goes down for days. In fact, one study found that missing one hour's sleep lowers a man's testosterone by the equivalent of 12 years of aging. So I'm 33. If I missed one hour sleep last night, today I'll have the same level of testosterone as a man who's 45. And if I missed two hours sleep last night, then today I'll have the same level of testosterone as a man who's 57. And what happens in a man's body is as testosterone goes down, his chances of having a heart attack go up. And when I learned that, I thought, that's really weird. Because at the time I was 29, and I remember thinking my whole life, I'd never heard anything good about testosterone. In fact, when I was a kid and there was a fight in my local pub, I remember my mum's friends saying, well, it's no wonder they ended up fighting. Because in the room, there was too much testosterone. Testosterone, yeah. Exactly. So I thought, how can a hormone that causes men to fight in pubs also protect men from having a heart attack. So I decided next week, my second day of learning, I'm going to learn about testosterone. That day comes around. First thing I want to learn is why does testosterone cause fights? Turns out it does not cause fights. That was disproved decades ago. Just the the PR on testosterone hasn't caught up with the facts. So now I know testosterone is not bad. I wanted to know why does it protect men from having heart attacks? And I find out that not only does testosterone protect men from having heart attacks, but it also protects a man's mental health. It's been found that middle-aged men who are depressed have on average 30% less testosterone than middle-aged men who are not depressed. And that's quite a big difference. You know, imagine having a 30% pay cut, you'd really feel it, wouldn't you? Mm, mm. And interestingly enough, in middle-aged men, low testosterone is also associated with suicide. So then I was really interested because at that point in 2019, 
the single biggest killer of men from the age of 18 to 45 was suicide. Now, four years later, suicide is the biggest killer of men from 18 to 50 because it keeps going up. But at the time, it's 18 to 45. Suicide and depression in men are both linked to low levels of testosterone. And I mentioned that in middle-aged men, there's a very strong link, which is really relevant because for every three suicides in the UK, one of them is a man aged 45 to 49. So middle-aged men are really overrepresented in deaths by suicide. It's the biggest killer of men from 18 to 45 suicide is associated with low testosterone. The biggest killer of men that year from 45 to 60 was heart disease. And heart disease, heart attack, and heart failure in men are all linked to low testosterone. So then I wondered, okay, if the biggest killers of men from 18 to 45, 45 to 60 are all linked to low testosterone, what happens after the age of 60? The biggest killer of men that year over the age of 60 was cancer. The most likely cancer a man would be diagnosed with is prostate cancer. And Marion, can you guess what is the single biggest indicator that a man will be diagnosed with prostate cancer? Uh, testosterone? Yeah, specifically low testosterone. Yeah. And so when I learned that, that was kind of one of the first moments that made me question what I knew. Because I remember thinking and realizing that up until that point in my life, I'd never heard anything good about testosterone. And yet testosterone is required to avoid all the biggest killers of men across all these different age ranges. And yet not only are men not taught that, but also there's actually stigma associated with testosterone that prevents men getting useful information when they're in crisis. And that was, I, I talk about lots of things that aren't testosterone, but that was the very beginning of my journey. That was my first two days of learning. And then after that, I carried on in this way, which was assuming I know nothing because I genuinely, Marion, I knew nothing. Like I didn't even know where to start. I just carried on one day a week, starting with big questions, reading studies and research paper. And by the end of that six months, I'd come to the conclusion that I wasn't actually learning anything new. Everything that I was learning from that point was coming back to the fact that there's actually there's five dimensions to male mental health that men need to balance understanding testosterone is just one part of one of those dimensions. I started balancing those five things in my own life. And then by about early 2020, other men started to approach me and say, like, we've noticed you're much happier, much healthier. Like, what have you changed? And because I had lots of experience from my past job in coaching, I, I used to, after hiring people, I would then go on to train them, coach them, manage them. When I was a sales director, I, I knew a lot about coaching. So I thought, well, what if I took what I knew and just literally shared it in coaching sessions? And then in February 2020, I got a call from a guy who said, you've helped my friend. Can we have a call? And honestly, Marion, he was a phenomenally talented actor. He was depressed. He was having thoughts about suicide every single day. And he hadn't been paid to work in two years. And we got on a Zoom call together and I started by saying, like, obviously, you know that you can't just talk to me. You need to talk to, you know, mental health professionals, go see your doctor, go see, go to counselling at the very least. And he basically said, Ryan, don't give me that. I'm already doing those things. I want something practical that I can do on the side that will also help. I said, OK, so on that basis, let me just share with you what I've learned. 
And three days into working together, he called me in the morning and he said, Ryan, I've just realized that yesterday was the first day in months I've not had any thoughts about suicide. And 10 days in, he called me in the morning and said, Ryan, I've just realized yesterday was the first day in years that I wasn't feeling depressed. And at the end of the 12 weeks that we worked together, because we always decided 12 weeks, we put a cut off in at the end. At the end of the 12 weeks that we worked together, yes, he was no longer depressed, no longer having thoughts about suicide, but probably just as importantly, he'd actually got two new job offers from Netflix and one new job offer from the BBC. And he's basically spent the last three years filming all around the world since then. In fact, he, he was on a series that was on BBC quite recently. And I remember I took a step back then. I was like, hold on, how did such simple information make such a difference to this guy in the same way it did to me? That that's quite the that's quite the transformation, but it really uh resonates as a as a coach myself, just seeing how, you know, over time and with the right nurturing and support and reframing of things, the difference that that it can make. And there's probably people listening here thinking, you've got some miracle, you know, <laughs> source. And it's really not. Um, but but firstly, thank you for for sharing that. I know um, you know these things are, are sometimes hard to talk about, and there'll be people um, you know listening to this that might have have experience. I have no experience of of of, of anything uh, you know like that happening to to anybody that 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 I know and know and love. Um, and, and as you're talking, I'm. It's interesting. I'm then thinking about it from a, a female perspective. So when I trained to be a coach my first step was to be a, a women's leadership coach um so just like you you started to notice things about women uh, about men sorry I noticed the same with women and a lot of it is um hormone dependent you know and as, as women we probably have a more um wobbly journey if you like a more adventurous journey with hormones and how it affects us and and, and things um, and I think, you know, you're right when it comes to talking about men and women, uh, uh, you know, male and female. Um, what I've learned being having learned those skills is that actually I've ended up working up with more men <laughs> than women. So I think any of these these skills, well, I suppose, you know, just how we're talking about it. It's not pigeonholing anybody. It's not, not you know, or anything. I think it's just you see something and you, you learn from it and it, it can help you. Uh, so as you're talking about hormones and testosterone, I'm thinking, yeah, you know, we as women, particularly when you get into your, you know, later menopause years, um, that can really affect you. Uh, and you're saying about testosterone, that's something for women also, that they have quite testosterone levels. And when it comes, and, and I took it for um, for a little while initially, you know, but we we don't talk about it because, you know, if I take testosterone as a woman, then, you know, I might be growing a beard. <laughs> you know, or getting into it down the pub with fights, you know, all the, the yeah. conceptions and myths that we have. But there's definitely something there about, you know, whatever shape, size, flavor you are, knowing how hormones affect us, because hormones then affect our mood and our energy levels. And it then becomes a, a, a into a cycle, doesn't it? Absolutely. I was at a brilliant event a couple of weeks ago, actually, in London. It's called, it was a menopause event. It was called Reclaim Your Body and Brain. Oh, Break. yeah, I think I, I think I saw that on LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah that's it. So I was really honoured. I was the only male speaker. Um, and I was, you know, essentially talking about the male endocrine system and how it's different. But I learned so much at that menopause event. Um, it backed up something that I've always believed, which is 
male and female hormones um, are very different. And actually, it's much more complicated on the female side. The cycles are longer, usually around 28 days, you know, and there's things like menopause, perimenopausal symptoms to consider. And as men, we are very lucky. Our hormonal cycles are 24 hours long. The amount of testosterone that you have in the morning, if you're male, the biggest factor is how long you slept for last night. And actually, there's there's sort of four main factors when it comes to testosterone for men, which we can jump into if you want, because they're useful lifestyle factors. So the the biggest difference that I see between a male and a female. So I use this term endocrine system, which just means the hormone system. Um, It's your endocrine system is how your body makes and transports and receives hormones and hormones control every function in your body. So to, to, to say that hormones is important is like the biggest understatement, right? Because the way that oh, you're for sure. the way your brain talks to your body is hormones. It's for sure. Know. And and we see that in the, the menopause, you know, as women we talk about brain fog. Yep. You know, if I if I haven't um you know had my got my HRT patch mm-hmm. and, and I have forgotten it for a week before now, I have a wreck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and it has that such a significant effect and until you've experienced it you you don't you know we take so much for granted don't we but sorry you were saying there's sort of these these four things that, that affect oh, yeah so so i'd always heard my whole life that the biggest factor when it comes to testosterone in men is age you know we hear all the time that once men get to once men get to 30 their testosterone starts to drop and there is a small decline in testosterone as men age, but it is nothing compared to lifestyle. So there's four main factors that influence a man's level of testosterone. The number one factor, which we've already kind of spoken about in a way, remember if a man misses one hour of sleep. Yep, absolutely. So the biggest factor in determining how much testosterone a man has today is how much sleep he had last night. And we already looked at, you know, missing one hour sleep adds the equivalent of 12 years of aging onto your testosterone levels. But then after that, it starts to get quite surprising. So do you want to have a guess that these are, they're all lifestyle factors. They're all things that we can choose and control. What do you think the biggest factors are, Marion? Uh, so I'd say uh, exercise, uh, the food that you eat. Yeah. Alcohol. Yep. Oh yeah, that's really good actually. So, so number two factor I would, I'd probably put number two down to diet and specifically for making a healthy level of testosterone, men need homemade food as opposed to processed food and lots and lots of green veg. In fact, you can kind of. Oh, the, thing, the thing is, Ryan, that sounds so bloody boring. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cause it's, cause it's, you know, it's the same for women, you know, if you, if you eat well, then you'll, uh, you know, you'll feel better. Yeah. Um, but sometimes you just can't be asked. <laughs> and and you know what? Especially if you're stressed and you're working hard and you're going from one survey to another and you're in the rain, you're just probably going to buy a sandwich from a supermarket and it's full of salt and it's full of sugar and it's full of carbs and there's no real greenery in it. And the end result is your body can't make the hormones that it wants to make to protect you and keep you alive. In fact, the thing about greenery, about green vegetables, is it's full of things like, uh, you know, magnesium. It's full of other minerals and vitamins as well. And they act as bodyguards to testosterone in our blood. 
So they things bind to testosterone and make it unusable. And the more greenery that you eat, the more bodyguards that you have that block things like SHBG and aromatase from breaking testosterone down. Unfortunately, life on the go means that we just don't get to eat whole foods. And this is taking a really big toll on men's testosterone levels. And then you actually... Oh, go on, Sorry, just, just on that point there, so I'm just thinking about all the surveyors who might be listening to this driving around in their cars. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when I when I used to be out doing my inspections, I would have my favourite sandwich shops, in mm-hmm. particular Piggies in North Croydon. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, you know, you'd, you'd find your, your favourite, you know, always make sure they had a five-star hygiene rating. Uh, but, you know, you, I'm just thinking about people driving around, but it's so hard to then you know um i say it hard it's it's finding the um uh the motivation you know to yeah. make a packed lunch in the morning or to organize your day so that you've got go to a healthy food shop um <laughs> uh, or, or whatever you know it's it's finding that that motivation towards it whereas i've just been negative about well i can't be asked eating healthy food <laughs> all of those things it's true but it, but at some point it will it will click in and you change yep. one thing and it starts to starts to make a difference and and you talking about um processed food uh i've been reading a book um called ultra processed food by one of the the doctors the uh twins van tolken i think it is um i'll put a link to it in the in the show notes and that's quite an eye opener actually it's it's a nice read um too but um yeah okay so sleep is one diet is two what's three Yep. So three is exercise. And in fact, there was an amazing, um, there's a really big study came out in May this year. So it's referred to as a meta-analysis where it's a study that studied other studies. And they looked at how 130,000 adults had recovered from depression, stress, and anxiety. And what they found is that exercise was one and a half times more effective than medication and one and a half times more effective than talking therapy. And this is really useful for us to know, because if you have a friend who is depressed, stressed or anxious, and they go and see their GP, if their GP follows the guidelines from the NHS, then your friend will leave the GP's office with a referral for talking therapy and a prescription for antidepressants. But they might get to that stage and still no one's told them that the single most effective thing they can do is to get out and do some exercise. So this is really important for people to know, I believe. And you see, um, you know, sometimes there are, that's why things like five-a-side football for men yeah. or, you know, uh, my husband has taken up cycling. Um, all the gear, no idea. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't listen to this, that's fine. But, it, you know, but he started going out on a on a Sunday morning with, you know, some of the, the local dads from the beer club. Yeah. Um, and it's made a huge difference, you know, Um it's just again it's about that motivation isn't it how do you just start doing that one thing particularly if you're not feeling particularly fit and healthy at the start you know and and finding that that energy um how much exercise do you need to do is it any or yeah so the nhs recommends that every adult does at least 150 minutes a week of moderate intensity exercise so this is your jogging maybe you're swimming you're cycling now if you're nowhere near that any exercise is better than no exercise. Our body is designed to be active. And there's lots of functions in our body that support our mental and our physical health that don't actually happen unless we're exercising. 
And so, you know, trying to improve your mental health without exercising is, it's a bit like hitting yourself in the head with a hammer and then telling everyone how much it hurts. It's like, well, it's going to hurt. It's, it's, that's not the way your body works. You know, you really have to be active as well. So it's also then finding something that you enjoy. Yeah. I guess is a, is a key part of it, isn't it? So what's number four? Yep. So then number four is, and this, I could never guess the fourth key ingredient for a healthy level of testosterone in men is vitamin D, which comes from the sun. Which we don't have an awful lot of here, I suppose, being in the Northern hemisphere. Yeah, especially in the winter. So your body's really good at storing vitamin D. Everyone's is. But the trouble is summer sun, midday, in the summer, eight to 10 minutes is enough for your body to get enough vitamin D for the day. But during the winter, who gets out at midday? And during the winter, you have to be out for a couple of hours because we cover up so much. So lots of people supplement vitamin D in the winter. And, and vitamin D is required for the making of testosterone. Otherwise, what happens is men end up with very low levels of testosterone because it's required for that actual manufacturing process. And when I saw that list of four things that men need to have in their life for a healthy level of testosterone, I remember thinking, oh, crap, because I knew Brad and I know that, yes, he did all the things we tell men in crisis to do. He went to the doctors. He took antidepressants. He went to talking therapy. He called his mum every night and opened up about how he was feeling. But no one he spoke to knew enough about male mental health to realise that Brad was working so hard that I knew that sleep, homemade food, exercise and sunshine just weren't on his list of priorities. At the time in my life, they weren't on mine. And I realised that actually trying to be a man is something that I think kills a lot of men. Oh, that's powerful, isn't it? It's really uh, at the time. Yeah, that, that absolutely is. And... I was going to ask you about why men don't talk, um, but you've just struck me there. <laughs> but I suppose it's, I suppose it's that 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 um, preconception that we have of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, or the um, you know what we're brought up with. You know, men don't cry and all of that that stuff. Um, you know, and, and so there's a lot of some well i don't know is there judgments we're in a you know we're in 2023 you know we we do talk a lot more than we than we ever have done we've been through a global pandemic together for for better or worse you know so it's not like it's back in the 50s you know mm-hmm. um and and so and i see this actually in a bizarrely uh, in a different way in a lot of my clients where they don't give themselves permission you know, so they think the way to run a surveying business is set up another mini corporate because that's all they know. And they know that they can do things differently, but they don't give themselves permission to do that or get the right support to do it. Yep. And it don't know how I've made that <laughs> made that link, but it sort of makes me think about, you know, as a as a man, then, you know, the everything that you're taught and um, that shapes you as you're, you're growing up, you know, is that, you know, is it that men don't talk and that. You know, you you go out on the lash every Friday night and, you know, you work hard and all the hours and, and things. It's sort of quite quite rigid and, and structured, but giving ourselves permission to step out from that is okay. I think it's, it's very important to give yourself permission to be the way you want to be and do what you want to do. I would challenge the common idea, though, that the reason why men don't talk as much as women do is because of the way that we're brought up. And, and because that's quite controversial, I'll, I'll just explain that if that's okay. Mm. So 
in mammals, we're going back to hormones here, but I think it's a really useful way to understand, you know, how it basically how our bodies work. So in mammals, there is a hormone that's associated with being close to other mammals and it's called oxytocin. And you'll know about oxytocin, if nothing else, from being a mum, because it's absolutely required for so many things that. Yeah. And I remember, my, I remember my husband uh, reading somewhere or I read it and gave it to him, I think. Yeah. And, and it was, um, you know, to to get the most uh, oxytocin or to get the most out of a hug, you need to have like six seconds, yes. six second hug. That's what we do <laughs> as a family yeah. now. So, so oxytocin in female mammals lowers stress. It does not lower stress in male mammals. Right. It, it makes them sleep and it turns them on, but it does not lower stress in male mammals. And we know this from studies on all kinds of different male mammals, like including rats and, and things like that. So then we come to humans. In humans, oxytocin is released when we cuddle, when we talk, even when we have sex. So it's to do with closeness and oxytocin is often known as the cuddle hormone. And if you're female, oxytocin lowers your stress, which means if you're female, talking, cuddling lowers your stress. But oxytocin doesn't lower stress in men. This so means what, if So you, what does? So what does? Well, so testosterone lowers stress in men. Right. Uh, in fact, the, the way that it does that, it basically acts on a man's brain in the same way Oxytocin ah, I see. So, yeah, I see. So even then, as we're, we're talking, I think this is why uh, it's so important to listen to the podcast, Marion. No, but why, why it's so important to just get familiar because it's the opposite. You know, so you think testosterone fires you up and, you know, makes you aggressive. But actually, it's the thing that brings you back to OK as a man. Down. Yeah. Yeah. And, and And we see that across like so many studies about men is testosterone doesn't make men aggressive low testosterone makes men aggressive right. actually the reason why injecting too much testosterone into a man's body makes him aggressive is because it it blocks natural production of testosterone it's a bit like you'll know from things like conversations about hrt which is when you start taking something negative feedback loops mean you stop making it and so so we have this difference if Something that I come across all the time is it's very natural for women to think when I talk about how I feel, I feel better. My husband doesn't talk about how he feels. Therefore, naturally, he needs to talk about how he feels. That's the solution. That Because that's half the world's lived experience. My lived experience as a man is when I have a problem, I don't want to talk about it. I want to fix it. And actually, sometimes the most inconvenient thing is when when my partner's saying, oh, why don't you tell me about it? I'm like, if you give me 30 seconds, I'll go and fix it. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And it's like it's like we're totally out of sync. And yes. I remember reading some research years ago that said that, you know, women are wired to tend and befriend, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, that's obviously linked to, to what you're saying. And, and yeah, you know, it's just being able to talk about talk about things. But for men, it's not necessarily um so you see so i see a lot of these um like campaigns for men and raising awareness and it's all about talking yeah isn't it and so does that have like a, a, a negative effect then you know it's like come you know come down to the the shed or the whatever it is the, the foot five side football and we'll talk and the last thing you want to do is, is talk and so there's almost a you know for women it's a you know and i see that from from the women in surveying stuff that I do, you know, it's a drop in, come and have a chat. 
know about whatever, whereas for men, it's more come and do something and just have some company. And if yes. a conversation comes afterwards, then, then so. So talking is vital for everyone. But for men, talking alone is not sufficient because if you're female, when you talk, then you have this rise in oxytocin, which lowers your stress. Men don't get that. So it's like, well, why do men talk? Well, men talk because they're trying to find solutions to problems. Actually, the, the idea that men don't talk is the more you think about it, it's kind of ridiculous. When you go to a pub on a Friday night, it's full of men talking. You go to like five aside football. All they're doing is talking. And even the idea that, in fact, lots of people complain that the men in meetings talk over them. So actually, when you look outside of that myth, it's like, oh, actually, this is definitely not true. And the idea that men don't express emotion, if you go to a football game, you will see, you and one team loses badly, you might see 30,000 men in tears at once. But... Because they're expressing emotion at a different time to when women do, there's this idea that that's somehow wrong. Yeah. And that that's not real emotion. That doesn't count. The talking in the pub doesn't count and that emotion doesn't count. So what I was, I've got, I've got some stats I'm going to share with you, which I find really illuminating. So you mentioned like, how is the current approach to male mental health working? So in the last five years, according to a study by the BACP, 79% of men agree it's now more acceptable to talk about mental health than it was just five years ago. 68% of men agree there's less stigma associated with mental health than there was just five years ago. So I believe they're both steps in the right direction. Between 2010 and 2022, according to the BACP, men in the UK became 50% more likely to have attended talking therapy in the last 12 months, another step in the right direction. But while it looks like on the face of things, everything's moving in the right direction, the figure that I care about is in the same time that men agree it's more acceptable to talk and that there's less stigma associated with mental health. And in the same time that men have made the extraordinary change and become 50% more likely to attend talking therapy, men in the UK have also become 11% more likely to die by suicide. So as you were talking there, uh, a couple of thoughts. It's almost as though they or we are doing mental health and not being mentally healthy in yes. that, you know, we tick the boxes. Yes, we go to, um, you know, talking therapy. You know, yes, we, we do this, that and the other. It's the, the doing rather than actually being and as you were talking about the you know the football scenario there's um an advert that i've seen going around i think it's yellow and green is it norwich football city football club and you know they're there there's sort of two characters um you know sort of cheering one just seems a bit reserved um and then you know one of them uh, the other one's sort of a bit hyper and i won't spoil it for people but i'll put a link in the uh, in the show notes but it's the one that you don't expect you know doesn't doesn't turn up and so I was, I was about to ask you, you know, can you sort of fake it till you make it? Or do, is there like a, almost like a, can you take your emotion out uh, and, and express your emotion at football match? And does that, you know, satisfy that need, yep. you know, of your body, you know, to learn how, I suppose it, it will help you learn how to express yourself with tears or shouting or, or whatever, mm-hmm. Uh, but does that help or is it the the faking it bit? So that's a really good question. So 
when I started a few years ago, I was kind of having similar thoughts. And lots of people will kind of have the idea that, well, if men can express emotion there, why not there? And actually the answer to that is something like expressing emotion is a natural thing that we do. It's it's not an instruction that men don't talk about their feelings. It's more an observation that men don't tend to talk about their feelings because talking about their feelings, bear in mind, we have this, we have information that tells us that oxytocin doesn't lower stress in men. Crying releases oxytocin. So to encourage men to cry is to, we're trying to get to the point where oxytocin is released, but we know oxytocin doesn't lower stress in men. So then the question then is rather than trying to get men to act more like women in a sort of archetypal way, what does help men? And there's lots of information on this. So um, one of my favorite, most useful studies is just a couple of years ago, 2021, there was a study in America where they approached survivors of suicide and they asked what was the most effective strategy? What helped you go from the point where you didn't want to live to the point where you want to live and you're now happy and healthy? And they found that there was some crossover, but generally there was different strategies that had helped men and women. For women, the most effective strategy was what the study referred to as a psychoeducational approach in a group setting with other women, which like, I didn't know what that meant, but that basically means learning about and understanding and expressing your emotion and, and, the, and that's what yeah and that's why for for women you know we talk about mentoring circles yes. or getting groups of women together it comes back to that um tend and befriend uh piece for sure yeah absolutely and and the group being in a group with other women is significant because actually the female mental health is about emotions and the best thing for female mental health is to express your emotions and to have other people essentially confirm that those emotions are completely valid so like i know when emma my wife yeah i get to say that now yay, just wife, married yay oh, thank you <laughs> so when emma has a bad day at work i know the best thing i can do is shut my mouth well first ask her how her day was and then shut my mouth and and just the process of talking about it is really beneficial for her and at the end of that i just say i can see why you feel that way and it took me 32 years to learn that, Marion, because my lived experiences, it doesn't help talking about it. I want to fix the problem. And it's been found that men talk, but they talk to people who they trust, respect and believe who can offer a solution, which is probably why in coaching, you'll find that there isn't that much of a problem getting men to talk. Because if people, if men trust you and respect you and believe you offer a solution, then often they will lay their cards on the table and say, this is what I've got. So we, we also know that that is the traditional approach to mental health is you want to encourage people to open up and you want to get them to express themselves. And then you want other people to tell them that that's completely valid. So then what did the study find works for men? Well, that wasn't the most effective approach for men. And bear in mind, this is a study of men who have overcome thoughts about suicide. We can learn a lot from them. Hmm. The most effective thing for men, the study found, was to focus on making changes in life towards becoming their ideal self. So while female mental health is about emotions, male mental health is about feeling capable. It's about knowing who you want to be and feeling progress towards being that man. 
that I believe is the biggest misunderstanding in mental health at the moment when it comes to men. I know it's generalizing of me to say there's a male and a female approach, but it's actually less generalized than the current approach to mental health, which suggests that everyone's the same and doesn't see biology as playing any part. What we've know, learned over the last couple of hundred years is every single part of our body reacts differently to hormones depending on whether we're male or female. So the idea that our brain doesn't is not very scientific at all. That's really interesting. And so I'm thinking about, so the clients that I work with, as I said, I, I started out as a learning about women, coaching women. It's now evolved into, um, I mean, you know, actually what's quite nice is on my current mastermind, it's half and half, 50 men, percent men, women, which is amazing. Um, and, you know, when I, when I coach and talk to people, yeah, I always, you know, I always start by saying, you have got all the jigsaw puzzle pieces. You've got everything you need. We're just shifting it out. But what does this picture look like? If you, if you, you know, you haven't got that, that box with the picture, you don't know what that looks like. You know, so people talk about having, you know, a vision and a mission and, and all of those things, but sometimes you just don't know yet what it looks like, but you start by putting the jigsaw pieces together that work, that fit. So if it's, a bit of work-life balance, if it's a bit of shifting, you know, the, the type of work that you do, saying no rather than yes, you know, even the, the the small things start to put together and and then you start to see what the picture is and move forward. Um and I uh and I, I see that see that a lot. And then the the other side of it is is actually knowing yourself better. You know, we have such it's weird as a profession as surveyors we are so diverse. There are no two surveyors who are the same. And yet we have such a strong identity of what it means to be a surveyor <laughs> and all yeah. the judgments around that and the expectations that we put on ourselves, you know, that we don't give ourselves permission to be the surveyors that we that we we could be and, and want to be. And, and our strength is absolutely our diversity. It is the fact that we're different. And, but rather than explaining to everybody, you know, how we're different from someone else, we just need to own it. And it's that being, not doing, you know, it's being the surveyor, the business owner, and this is what I do, and this is how I work, and these are my boundaries and, and things, and not sort of doing what you think should be done and getting onto that onto that treadmill, isn't it? Can I ask you about um, coaching uh, yourself? So I trained, uh, what got me into to, uh, to coaching was I, I did this um Women in Surveying Virtual Summit about five or six years ago, where I thought I would interview some women about their careers. It was part of a, a project that I was doing while I was on, on garden leave at the time. And I thought I'd you know, ask a few people and, you know, tick the box, if you like. Yep. Never done anything like that before. And it was great. I had loads of interviews. It went out. And when you become um, the, the go-to person, you then have to deal with people's worry beads, their challenges, the things that they come to you for. And I always say, you know, I'm happy to help and I will signpost where I can because even that in itself is powerful, just knowing that there are people out there that can help you if you so choose. It's that that ripple effect. But I found that, you know, um, women would come to me, you know, literally fearful of being raped while, while on building sites um, really, really struggling with their mental health, um, uh, depression, uh, navigating the baby years, bully bosses, you name it, everything. And I learned to be a coach in part to help. And I wasn't going to 
be a coach, but I got I got trained to it in part to help them, but also to protect myself. Because when you just want to go in and help somebody and you know being now I know being neurodiverse that's my thing of going in and trying to save the day because you know I can um and so it's having those those boundaries and you know you were saying um earlier on about working in sales and you would recruit people and coach and support them and I see a lot of surveyors who get into that sort of mentoring role as maybe sort of APC counselors to help people get qualified um, or they find themselves being a team leader or a regional manager or something, and they've never really had that training to manage on on one side. Um, but then also then the the personal side of of co- of coaching. Um, how has your experience been, or how do you manage it? I think that coaching is one of the things that made the biggest difference to my life, as in being coached. Um, one of the probably the biggest lesson that I learned from my 20s at work, the biggest work related lesson that I learned was there was a point where I'd always been one of the top salespeople at the jobs that I'd worked. And then everywhere I went, they started trying to pigeonhole me into being a manager. And I found that I was a really good salesperson, a really terrible manager. And then it got to the point where I couldn't escape anymore. I had to be a manager. And actually, about five years into being a manager, I I kind of um, realized something which was really useful for me, which was I had always believed that the reason why I was a good salesperson was because of the way that I had done things. And so I wanted everyone to do everything my way. And then about five years into being a manager, I realized that actually the reason I'd been a good salesperson isn't because of the way I did things. It's because I had always been allowed to do things my way. And so I I decided to let go and let everyone in my team start doing things their way. And that's when I really moved from being a manager actually to being a coach. Because the way that I often explain it is a good mentor answers your questions. It's someone who's been there, they've done that, and, and they've got a rough idea of what you should do. But that's not the role of a coach, I don't believe. I believe that the role of a coach is to encourage you to ask better questions of yourself. And sometimes it can be like, um, you know, it, you're not a driving instructor. You don't have to know how to do everything. You sometimes just the act of being with people and asking them questions helps them to reframe and solve all their own problems. And you, you probably see that all the time, Marion. Like when I started in coaching, it used to take like 12 weeks for people that I worked with, for men that I worked with to transform their life and solve problems. And then over the time I got more experience, I noticed that the transformations went from taking weeks to a week. And then from taking a week to a single coaching session. And then sometimes you're 15 minutes into coaching session and people say, I know what I need to do. Thank you. And, and you've probably seen that yourself. And I think what happens as a coach is you, you learn so much more about people and you just help them find what is great by helping them find their own solutions. And so there's a nice distance in being a coach. I think that it's a methodology and a practice that is really sometimes undervalued and underrecognized. And when lots of successful or happy people are asked what made the difference, they will often say it was this coach or these coaches that I worked with. And sometimes life coaching gets sort of a, a bit of a, a rap of being a, a fad, but it comes in all sorts of shapes and sizes and, and different contexts. You know, you're you're looking at male mental health. I'm looking at specifically at, at surveyors. Um, 
you know, and you know, as you're saying that, it's and I've had exactly the same. You know, 15 minutes into a call, and people know what they need to do. Yeah. You know, they might call me saying, "Well, you know, I want to be part of the mastermind, or I need to do something, or." And just having a chat helps. You know, they they know the, the it comes back to that permission thing, I suppose. But just having the the chat and airing something helps, and people know if they're right to to work with you, and you know, it's the the next steps, and there's never any pressure for that, but. You know, if I can spend 15 minutes talking to somebody, not that I've got any miracle questions, you know, it's it's more that how they show up, you know, and what they expect and what sometimes it's just that validation that, you know, is it also like, is this okay for me to work for myself? Is this the right time? Um, and, and when it does get draining for me, and you learn this as a, as a coach as, as you as you go on, it's when it's not the right fit. You know, and and I think that's the same for those that are doing the um, APC counselling and, and mentoring and all of those things. If it's yeah. hard and you're not enjoying it, it is the wrong fit. And and that's you know uh, you know I I tend to talk about life friendly, meaningful businesses. People who've worked for a couple of of years, um, as, you know, as a surveyor doesn't mean I don't work with other people. But if it's all about money and it's all about how much you can maximise your day in managing other people. I'm not interested. There are other people who can help you with that for sure, you know. And, and me learning to say no to that as means that I get more of the right right clients and people to to work with. And you know, and and, and that's the same as any sort of I suppose ideal client uh, client piece. Um, Ryan, it's been fabulous to talk to you today. I hope people listening to this have found it really helpful. Can we add all of the links? Of you've mentioned all sorts of different things. Um, uh, bits and pieces we'll put them in the the show notes so people can have a have a read up and and how can they contact you or find yep, out more so about what you're up to if any of what we've spoken about today has resonated with you or if there's a man in your life that you think would benefit from having this kind of open conversation then the best thing that you can do is reach out to me through my website which is themenscoach.co.uk i my mission is to share the science of male mental health in talks in workshops and on my coaching program so that you never lose any of the men that you care about to suicide. Lovely. Thank you ever so much. Thanks, Marion. Thanks for listening. If you are new to the podcast, do check out some of our past recordings. And when you're ready, leave us a review on Google or Apple iTunes, or you can buy me a coffee. All the links are in the show notes. I'll see you next time.